Welcome to the Littler Workplace Policy Institute podcast. Insider briefings on the latest legislative and regulatory developments affecting employers. Hello, I'm Corinne Jackson, an attorney with Littler Mendelssohn's Workplace Policy Institute, or WPI. And I'm Bruce Sarchet, a Littler shareholder in Sacramento, California, and also a member of the WPI. Bruce, can you believe it's already 2018? Not really. Time sure flies. And 2018 brings plenty of changes for employers, particularly in California. That's right. As we've previously discussed, a salary history ban took effect on January 1, and there's also a new parental leave law. Correct. California employers will also see expansion of the restrictions on criminal background checks for applicants, and those restrictions now apply to employers with five or more employees. Employers certainly have plenty to juggle already as 2018 unfolds. But let's talk about a few more changes that might develop in the new year, which will bring a fresh legislative session as well as further elections. A good idea, Corinne. Uh, Plenty of proposals are already floating around. I think we should focus in particular on the California Private Attorneys General Act, or PAGA. Agreed. PAGA claims continue to gain popularity. And the California courts often give PAGA an expansive and employee-friendly interpretation. No doubt about it. Well, we can start with a brief overview of PAGA. We'll highlight some of its challenges for employers, and then we can discuss possible amendments to the law that will be under consideration in 2018. I'm not sure there is such a thing as a brief overview of PAGA, but we'll give it a shot. Boiled down, PAGA is a unique California law that allows employees to step into the shoes of the labor commissioner. It permits employees to basically enforce the state labor laws on their own through private lawsuits. Yep, that's right. Under PAGA, aggrieved employees may sue to recover penalties on behalf of the state and on behalf of themselves and other employees. In fact, 75% of any amount recovered is designated for the labor commissioner, with the employees sharing the remaining 25%. The penalties come from two sources. First, PACA authorizes employees to band together to recover any penalty already explicitly included in the labor code. So, for example, the labor code sets out specific penalties for minimum wage violations. Before PAGA was enacted in 2004, only the labor commissioner could seek those penalties. But now, employees may pursue those kinds of penalties directly. And in addition, PAGA imposes a penalty on any labor code provision that does not already include a specific penalty. So, to be clear, does this mean that every violation of the California labor code can result in penalties? Well, not quite. There are some exceptions. For example, Failure to display a specific workplace poster may not result in PAGA penalties. Gotcha. Still, it is safe to say that for most substantive labor code violations, the default penalty applies if the statute did not specify a penalty before PAGA. Bruce, how much is the default PAGA penalty amount? The default penalty is $100 per employee per pay period for an initial violation and $200 per employee per pay period for any subsequent violations. Yeesh, I can see how PAGA could give employers heartburn. Those penalties must add up quickly if you have several alleged violations or many affected employees or both. 
Yes, the numbers can be alarming, and they are particularly shocking when an employer is facing claims based on clerical errors or other unintentional mistakes. Plus, there is still a lot of confusion surrounding how the penalties should be calculated. This confusion, as you might expect, makes it difficult for employers to defend POGA claims. Absolutely. Well, for kicks, why don't we look at an example of how the penalties can be confusing? Boy, they really know how to party. Oh, come on. It'll be fun. I'll go first. How does the default penalty apply, for example, if three separate violations are alleged for a single pay period? Let's say you have an alleged violation concerning meal breaks, lunch periods, and overtime payments. Does the statute contemplate a penalty of $100 per employee to cover that entire pay period, or does it intend a penalty of $500, $100 for the first violation plus $200 plus another $200 per employee for all three violations? In other words, does the penalty accrue per pay period or per alleged violation? Yep, that's confusing, all right. And here's another related question. Are all violations within the first challenged pay period considered initial offenses, assuming they each count as a separate violation? So in your example, would all three alleged violations be considered initial offenses, triggering a $300 penalty for all three? Or would the penalty total the $500 you mentioned? Yep, Corinne, there are a lot of mental gymnastics involved with pocket. There also seems to be a fair amount of overlap between the different penalty provisions within the labor code. Very true. So now that our brains are warmed up, tell us more about what you mean. Okay, bear with me, everyone. It turns out that the California Labor Code includes two different kinds of penalties. First, there are civil penalties. PAGA default penalties are civil penalties. If recovered, they exist to serve the greater good because the award runs primarily to the labor commissioner. But hang on, because we really are going down the rabbit hole now. Okay, I see Alice. I see the rabbit. I bet you do. They love PAGA. As I'm sure (laughs) Alice would tell you, the second type of penalties is referred to as statutory penalties. These statutory penalties are found in certain labor code provisions. They existed before PAGA, and they benefit individual claimants. Okay, wait, let me guess. Sometimes plaintiffs want to recover both kinds of penalties. Well done. Alice would be proud. Sometimes aggrieved employees attempt to recover both or stack the penalties based on the same facts. Some courts have permitted this because the penalties have different sources in the code and serve different purposes, but other courts have not. And that's not the only tension between these civil and statutory penalties. No, it's not. But I think we need to climb out of the rabbit hole. Agreed. Let's use a more concrete example. Labor Code Section 226A requires employers to provide pay stubs or wage statements with very specific information. If an employer violates Section 226A, let's say the wage statement omits the employee's identification number, it could be subject to penalties. Well, Labor Code Section 226E includes such a penalty, doesn't it? Yep. Under Labor Code 226E, an employer guilty of a knowing and intentional violation of 226A must pay injured employees a penalty of $50 for an initial offense and $100 
for any subsequent offense. Section 226E also states that it does not apply to an isolated or unintentional payroll error, like a clerical mistake. Correct. But remember that PAGA does not necessarily include that same exception. It could apply to clerical mistakes. So what happens if an employee seeks a PAGA default penalty for that kind of pay stub violation instead of the Section 226E penalty? Well, that's the precise question posed recently to a California state appellate court in the case called Lopez versus Friant and Associates. The plaintiff in that case alleged a wage statement violation, but sought only PAGA default penalties. The employer objected. It argued that the plaintiff wasn't really injured by the pay stub error and that the violation was not knowing and intentional. The employer stressed that this error was simply inadvertent. Well, what happened? Did the court agree? No, unfortunately, the court rejected those arguments. The court noted that distinction which you mentioned earlier, Corinne, the difference between statutory penalties and civil penalties. While Section 226E limited recovery to knowing violations, the plaintiff wasn't pursuing the statutory penalty under Section 226E. Because the plaintiff sought the PAGA default penalty, and because that civil penalty was analytically distinct from the statutory penalty, the plaintiff did not have to show that he was injured or that the violation was intentional. So the California court permitted the employee to pursue PAGA default penalty claims for himself and his coworkers for more than 5,700 pay stubs based on an unintentional clerical mistake, even though no employee suffered actual harm from the pay stub omission? And he could do that through PAGA without having to formally certify a class action? Well, it, it sounds really bad when you put it like that. Well, no need to mince words, Bruce. That is not a good ruling for employers. No, it's not. PAGA can really be a hornet's nest for California companies. So what can be done about this situation? Can employers do anything? I think so. Uh, business groups are obviously concerned about PAGA's ramifications, and not just for their own sake. Many believe that PAGA negatively affects the business environment of the state of California, stifling innovation and growth. Some of these business organizations have taken tangible steps to try and change the law. That's right. The California Business and Industrial Alliance, for example, promotes the interests of small and mid-sized businesses and regularly advocates for PAGA amendments. Right now, they are working on possible legislative proposals regarding PAGA. Speaking of legislative measures, you mentioned earlier that some amendments might be possible. Yeah, near, nearly every year, California lawmakers consider some type of amendment to PAGA that might clarify the law and alleviate some of this burden. Anything brewing for 2018? Well, so far, there are three bills that were proposed in the Assembly in 2017, AB 1429, AB 1430, and AB 281, that should carry over into 2018. All three bills were most recently under review by the Assembly's Committee on Labor and Employment. Let's start with AB 1429. What would that bill do if enacted? AB 1429 would reduce the number of labor code offenses subject to PAGA, so it would limit civil penalty recovery to a smaller set of alleged violations. 
It would also cap recovery at $10,000 per aggrieved employee and would no longer allow claimants to recover their filing fees. And what about AB 1430? AB 1430 takes a different approach. It would revise the pre-lawsuit procedures applicable to PAGA claims. Specifically, this proposal would require the state's Labor and Workforce Development Agency to investigate all PAGA claims, which would mark a big change. And then, after the investigation, the LWDA would either issue its own citation or determine if there is a reasonable basis for civil action. In addition, aggrieved employees could not file suit unless they received notice from the LWDA that a reasonable basis for a civil action exists. They could also sue if the LWDA fails to issue any notice as required, but civil lawsuits would be permitted only in those two scenarios. It looks like AB 281 tackles yet another aspect of PAGA. Yes, that's right. Under PAGA, employers have an opportunity to remedy some types of violations within a certain time frame. Essentially, if the employer fixes the problem identified by a claimant within 33 days of learning about the issue, and if the employer notifies the employee and the LWDA about the steps it took, the employee cannot sue based on those allegations. And AB 281 would extend this notice and cure period up to 65 days, giving employers more time to remedy violations and protect themselves from litigation. So while we can't chill the champagne yet, these proposals would likely streamline penalty claims under the labor code. California employers just might have reason to celebrate in 2018 if these measures make headway. We will continue to monitor these proposals throughout the year. And of course, we will report back with any noteworthy developments. For now, thanks to everyone for your attention. Stay tuned to Littler's Workplace Policy Institute for further updates and information regarding state and local workplace regulatory and legislative developments. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.